Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we've got a supersized episode, not in terms of length, but in terms of the number of people you'll hear talking. On one side, Dan Deacon. On the other, all four members of Future Islands, Sam, Garrett, William, and Michael. As you'll hear, Deacon and the Future Islands guys are old friends. They're all associated with the incredibly fertile Baltimore music scene of the past decade plus. Future Islands really broke through with their 2014 album, Singles, poking their head into the mainstream with an epic performance on David Letterman's show. But their deeply personal synth-pop catalog runs deeper than just that one song, Future Island's latest album is called As Long As You Are, and it's great. Dan Deacon is an electronic musician whose catalog also includes a bunch of movie soundtrack work. You'll hear about that in the conversation. Deacon also released an album in the lost year of 2020 called Mystic Familiar, full of epic electronic jams that surely would have led to more legendary Dan Deacon live shows had the pandemic not interfered. But the occasion for this conversation is actually a coming together of Deacon and Future Islands. Earlier this year, Deacon remixed, or recreated is probably a better word, a track from that latest Future Islands album called For Sure. As you'll hear in this talk, he built and built and built, nearly tripling the song's running time. Check out a little bit of Deacon's remix of For Sure. When you say us, you make me trust I will In their chat, you'll hear about how Deacon and Future Islands first met, including an incredible story about how Deacon was basically bullied into dancing at his first Future Islands show. They also talk about how the band Queen is an inspiration in terms of output, and naturally about how lockdown has affected their schedules and creative process. Enjoy. Is everyone in Baltimore, but Sam, you're in NC right now? Yeah, I'm in North Carolina. I want to be able to say that I'm in my childhood bedroom right now, but I'm actually in my brother's childhood bedroom because he has kicked me out of my own childhood bedroom. For years and years, I've been coming home to sleep in his old room because he refuses to sleep in it. (laughs) Because he's like, he's like too many bad memories. And I'm like, hey, my room is full of good memories that I never get to visit. And I get to live (laughs) in your room full of all of your bad memories. Wait, do he he have all his shit in his room? And, but he still sleeps in your room? He doesn't really have stuff here. That's probably part of it. Mm. But when he's not here, I sleep in my old room. It's really great, actually, because I feel really inspired at my desk, which I don't get to visit right now because he's home as well. It's nice being at my old desk it's where I learned to draw and write, you know? It's pretty cool. My dad sold the house um, on Long Island well over 10 years ago now. So I don't have any sort of... a childhood home spot we go to the park sometimes behind the house but the house has been like redone and repainted and remodeled from the outside so that doesn't even feel like the same place have you ever done that movie thing though where you like go up and knock on the door and ask like hi uh i used to live here may i enter my (laughs) childhood bedroom (laughs) i saw it for sale and i thought about scheduling a visit just to scope it out yeah yeah. what i really want to do is buy my my grandmother's old house because she, she was losing it a little bit towards the end of her life, but she told me that she hid a bunch of like Brooklyn Dodgers baseball cards above the garage. 
and I really want to find this house and um, break into the garage, tear the, tear the garage apart, and find these like Jackie Robinson rookie cards. Wow. I can't divulge any more information. I know listeners are already like, let's find the house. Also, though, I kind of think that you're sitting on a gold mine uh, of a screenplay, Dan. <laughs> Maybe you need to write the he story. He goes to jail. Like many episodes. <laughs> I think William, Sam, and Mike still have the the house they grew up in and the fam. Yeah, I just visited that house yesterday to check in on my parents. What's your room like there? It's my stepdad's office. With his like computer from from like the movie War Games that has like notes taped all over it because he doesn't know how to do anything and he won't switch to Apple so like Microsoft stuff just get like harder and harder for him and it's just it looks like a beautiful mind just like stuff like taped all over the walls like for him to remember how to turn it on and log on and stuff. He called me to come over there. You got to look at my computer. There's no sound coming out. No matter what I do, like I can't listen to my classical music on YouTube. I've tried everything and like nothing works. And I think if we're just going to have to get rid of it. And he had these external speakers and I guess he just said like, turn them off. I was like, yeah, you turn the speakers off. What about you, William? You got any uh, psychopath computers or... Um... <laughs> No, I guess I had two childhood rooms and they're both just guest rooms now. Anything that I still have that's in the house is just in the closet in the last room I was in. We're always talking about how we met you, Dan. And I'm curious to hear what your memory is of meeting us. We were very much centered in that memory, William. It's 2004, if I recall. It was at the Backdoor Skate Shop. And uh, I was on my first tour, no idea what to expect. And I think we originally had like eight shows booked together. Like Ben Fergal, who booked the tour, was like, he was like, yeah, it's a two-week tour. And we're doing 12 shows in North Carolina. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what if we do uh, one? How about we do one show in North Carolina? Are there 12 cities in North? And looking back, like it was... I was wrong. We should have done 12 shows in North Carolina. It would have been amazing. But um, anyway, so we're doing this show. We show up and it was the only show of the tour that had human beings at it that weren't in the bands. I think most of the other shows were like just five men. Um, so that was a, a real nice change of pace. It was a packed show and that was... Uh, not true of any of the other shows on tour. And it wasn't just um, other creepy men. So <laughs> we... Other. Was that, first, was, Additional. That first, was that your first gig, like, out of town? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I used to play in New York City. This is when I was at Purchase. So I would play, like, within, like, a night drive of uh, college, but never a tour. This would have been my first tour. So we show up and the show's great. Like people are paying, people are partying outside, people, I'm selling merchandise. It's like an actual show. And William booked it. And so like William was the main person I was talking to, Garrett. I don't think I spoke to Garrett for like four years, even though like <laughs> we hung out countless times, like he didn't speak a word for years and years. So right before Art Lord was supposed to go on, 
William comes over and he's like, I danced when you were playing. I was out there. I was dancing. I was like, oh, I saw you, man. That, that was great. I, I saw you. I appreciated that. Uh, and he's like, will you, um, will you dance for us? I was like, I've never heard you guys. I don't know what the music's like, but I love to dance. I'll probably be out there. And he's like, will you, will you promise me that you will? <laughs> are you are you serious? I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. And I was like, uh, I don't know, man. Like, I'm I'm probably gonna like, but like I said, I don't know the music. And he's like, he's like, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if you promised that you would. <laughs> and I was like, Do you play for the people at home? For the people at home, William is nodding his head in disagreement or disbelief. I'm not sure. I should have just said yes. I was just sort of like. I can't promise you anything. Like I, I I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. And then I don't, of course, I don't remember. You, I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, just <laughs> really pressuring you to promise. I don't remember the promise. <laughs> the promise. The promise. <laughs> there was an insistence upon the promise. The promise was an insistence. So like you guys start and everyone immediately starts dancing like crazy, like the hardest <laughs> I've ever seen. Anyone dance in my life? I'm like out there in the audience, like trying to like make eye contact with William. Like, do you see? Do you see me dancing? And he can't even see me. There's so many people. I have to like pull myself to the front and be like, "Hey, it's me, the guy you forced into dancing. I was gonna dance anyway." <laughs> so the show ends, and uh, show ends, and um, I see William when he's packing up, and I'm like, "I was out there. I was dancing." He was like, "I saw. Thanks." <laughs> I hung around Garrett for years, but I didn't really get to know Garrett until that really busted tour we did in the Midwest. Garrett started just like pranking me constantly, like little <laughs> tiny micro Garrett pranks, like hiding and scaring me. Or that's that's how you know you've made it. It was like when someone has like a a cat and they're like, oh, this cat hates everyone, <laughs> and then like it comes and like sits on your lap, and you're like, yes, it's just shit. <laughs> <laughs> so you made a remix dan the remix was very extremely touching beautiful beautiful well you gave me some beautiful beautiful sounds to work with and i was just sort of like oh i gotta i want to listen to this more i want to hear oh let's get in here that's how i talk when, to myself when i'm alone in my studio um i can't remember how it started i think like you guys either sent me an advanced copy of the record or it was almost a year ago now right like when this would have i can't remember yeah probably but, so uh, it was a long time ago and i remember just being like this would sound really nice if it just built and built and built because that riff is like the cornerstone of the song is this you know monumentally big riff and i always want to hear the baby steps that get to that climactic sound that is the finished song so it was just fun to and I was doing like, you know, I did like three scores last year and I was in this cinematic mindset and Sam, your lyrics are so cinematic on their own, just like reading them, like put you in a place visually. And I thought giving it some space there would really let the story you were telling come out. And then once we've had so much voice in this large crescendo, just to let the other sounds float so we could sit in that imagery without being pulled in new directions until you come back in. So that was sort of the structure. Where where do you enjoy listening to the remix uh, the most, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> well, I listen to it on Spotify because uh, I've got to share the publishing. So I get like 
0.000014 cents every listen. So I just, I'm blasting it nonstop. But uh, I want to talk about your your score work. How many scores have you done now? I feel like you've been on a roll the last four or five years since Rat Film. It seems like you've been doing a lot of stuff. I've probably seen Rat Film like nine or 10 times now. I just watched it again recently with some some new friends. And you know oh, that's yeah. a movie that I'm always sharing because I just think it's so brilliant. I'm excited for you to see Theo's new one, All Light Everywhere. It's loosely about like the history of cameras and surveillance and talking about how we see and how the camera frames everything and that there's always a person behind the camera choosing what's framed and talks a lot about how police body cameras are designed for and basically by law enforcement for the benefit of law enforcement. Whenever there's like a murder committed by the police, people are like, oh, they should have body cameras, body cameras on all cops. But body cameras are for creating evidence, not for creating accountability. And the police choose how they record, the quality of the cameras, what's recorded and when. They can review the tape after use of force and revise their statement before it becomes a... Like, they're con- they're controlling the narrative. And it talks about like how cameras have always been weaponized. Like, the first camera was the photographic revolver. The first m- portable movie camera was the photographic rifle. The same terminology of point, aim, shoot, load, trigger. Like, they're all based in weaponry and how there's always this sort of like, oh no, but with this iteration of technology, things will, will get better. And with this level of surveillance and this level of information, we'll finally achieve public safety. And it always just leads to more oppression. And this is my distilling of it. I think Theo would have a very different description, but that was my takeaway watching it while scoring. It was thinking about those particular, and it's a very similar to Rat Film where it has like, it's like a hybrid doc essay film. So there's elements. Of, it's a, it's pretty, it's a heady film, but I'm, I'm psyched on it. I think it's his best work. I was in the thick of that while working on the For Sure remix. I mean, I love listening to heady experimental music, but I also love these sick fucking jams. So when that record came out, I was just like, yes. And it really was like peak COVID where I was also like, why can't I be in a room sweating with people listening to this music? Um, And couldn't hang out with you guys. And we used to bro down so hard. So hearing that record really brought me back to like Preston Street days and just uh, really wanted to do the remix. What was it like for you guys making the call to put the record out right now? I'm sure it wasn't an easy one, but it's also impossible to sit on a record. So what, what was that process? I feel like we only really thought about it for a day or two, maybe just a day. It was probably in April or May when we were turning in final masters and talking about release dates. And then this, you know, this new thing was happening in the world and us realizing that these dates that we had set up for September may not come through. Um, And then we're like, well, let's think about the release date a little bit longer. And then was like maybe October won't come through. I feel like by like May or June, it was like, do you want to put out the record this year? You probably won't be able to tour it. Or do you want to wait till the beginning of 2021? <laughs> and we were like, well, what if we don't get to tour then? But I think really quickly after a day's thought, it was just like, we have to put out the record. You know, we've we spent a year, year and a half making this record. Um, and for us, uh, 
you know, thinking that if people are still stuck inside at that point, like come October, there might be people out there who really would appreciate having some music. And I think as an artist, all you have is your ability to share your art um, and, and not being able to do that live, which is where we feel the most comfortable doing it, you know, putting out music into the world was important for us to share what we were doing. I know for me, I feel like probably for the guys too, I, I can't work on the new thing until the old thing is out. It's not like I, we're like, hey, we finished this record. Let's write a new record while this thing doesn't come out. You have to get it out of the system. And then you're like, okay, that chapter is done. Move on to the next chapter. Um, because also, you know, for me, especially as a, as a writer, uh, the lyricists in Future Islands, when the songs are coming out, they're emotions that are three to 10 years old. Things sure. that I've been working through in my life or things that happen to me that I haven't been able to put my head around. And then when I, I'm finally able to put my head around it, it can be years later. And then maybe that song doesn't come out into the world for another year or two. So it's, it's always kind of dealing in the past. But in a way, I feel like we're almost caught up now since we haven't been able to tour. We're usually writing creatively at the, at the will of when touring exists, which for us is pretty regular in a touring year. But now we're just, <laughs> we don't know what's happening. And we've just been writing with no prospects for going on the road, which is a really heavy thing, you know? I know for yeah. you too, it's for all musicians, touring is pretty much how you support yourself. We don't support ourselves with record sales. The messed up thing was that I had said to the guys, probably end of 2018, at the end of the Farfield touring, <laughs> that I wanted to tour half as much and put out twice as many records, basically. Let's put out a record every year and a half for two years instead of every three years and let's tour half as much as we do, but tour every year instead of taking a year off in between records. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> that that kind of came true. It was like, cool, now you can put out all the records you want to. You can write all the songs you want to because <laughs> you won't ever get to play again. Uh, you know what I've always wanted to do? I think you guys would be into this, is I want to look at the calendar that... Queen had leading up to the two albums, A Day at the Races and A Night at the Opera, because they were doing world tours, like while writing two records that came out in one year. So how were they structuring studio time, rehearsal? They must have been writing songs during sound check, um, booking studios all over the place or flying. I mean, obviously they had like a budget that we could never even begin to comprehend because record sales were out of control and they were fucking Queen. But they did it. Like, how do you write two albums of just pure slayers, redefine yourself as a band musically as well, and still have like the most insane rigorous touring schedule that could possibly exist? So I just would love to see like a book of their actual itinerary. Like, you need to be here at this time, here at this time, here at this time. We get on the, like, they must have been writing on planes. And I, I it just, it's mind boggling to think about how quickly albums used to get turned around and because because like, people say to me like oh wow it's like five years between uh america and glycerifer and i'm like or i mean uh glycerifer and mystic familiar and they're like why did it take so long it's like why did it take so long because i i'm one guy and <laughs> i have to play shows to make a living and i have to do so much stuff just to do that like it's it's yeah it takes so much just to travel and to it it's hard for me to get in that headspace. So I know exactly what you mean with the like one chapter has to be done before you start the next one. And for me, it's almost become like the whole album cycle is like that. Like it's hard yeah, for me to of. even think about like moving on from 
a record until I'm done touring it because I have to re-enter that mindset that I was in when I was writing it to perform it. And I try to not do that since that can be an unhealthy way of thinking, especially if the material's on like a darker level or something. But I would just love to see what schedules used to exist and how it happened. So if well, you I mean, happen to own like Brian May's calendar from <laughs> 1974, whenever those records came out. I am always blown away by those bands from that time period who were just putting out a record a year. And even a band like The Cure that in future rounds, we all look up to a lot. They just like killed the 80s. Just like records almost every year that are all just amazing to me. And I, I, I really respect that. And that's something that kind of drives me to want to be more productive as a writer but you're also like so productive and getting older at the same time because i think there is something to be said for youthful exuberance and that feeling that you can do anything when you're younger you come to ideas in a very natural way you're less afraid you're less filtered i always talk about art lord you know our first band we put out like four records <laughs> you know it's like two and a half years four records they're all cdrs we didn't go into a studio but I love some of those ideas so much, but it was also because there was no filter on it. There's some really ridiculous songs in there. Um, Mein Scheiser, for one, um, which is uh, an Art Lord uh, underground classic. I think about stand-up comedians a lot in like the generation of material, since like they'll they'll workshop all new material on a tour and then release the special and then never perform it again. And with music, it's kind of the exact opposite. Where like, mm -hmm. especially now with like, you don't want new songs going up on YouTube or bad recordings of something before the record might be two or three years out. So often when I get off a tour, I'm like, God, I wish I was recording these songs. And just thinking about the way stand-up comedians workshop material with an audience, hone it, see what works, see what doesn't, riffing on it constantly, and then make their, their special is a way I've always wanted to approach a record. And I keep thinking like, how much touring am I going to do moving, you know, speak on you're getting older. I love to travel. I love playing shows, but I also really like growing some moss that I haven't done that my whole life as a musician. It's always been maximized every single day possible. And when you're not touring, you're recording or doing this project or that project. Could I do a tour that was all new material? Does that work? Like the way stand-up comedians do it is they play really small clubs. Like, I mean, that's what we used to do up until singles. We couldn't afford to, to like take time off and write an album. And then but that's the change. That's the change before singles and after singles. Future rounds are like two completely different lives. Very you know? different. But we yeah, did it. For, we did it for the far field. We did it for as long as you are also. Yeah. But they, but I mean, but they were but like the... short, like two week tours or like for the far field was like a one week secret tour. And then we did like a week and a half or two weeks when we toured uh, as long as you are. Before and that was like before in. like writing began or that was before recording began? We'd already started recording, but some things changed. After the tour, we went back in the studio and we were like, you know, this song feels better now that we played it in front of people for a week or two. Let's re-record the basic tracks for this song and rebuild it from the ground up. Other right. songs, maybe the drums needed to change or maybe the bass needed to change for a song. I think to an extent it, it informs the the way that Sam sings. Yeah, for after, sure. After you play him in front of an audience. Well, that's very true. But but that's also the difference between playing those songs for two weeks and recording them as opposed to when we did an evening air. I think we were touring Tin Man and Long Flight and an apology for maybe six or seven months before we recorded them. 
those songs grew a lot and they really found a lot of their emotional core in a much grander way. It was crazy when we did the Farfield because we were touring that album for eight months before we figured out how to play the songs live almost. We would always just slip a couple new songs in, you know? We would do two months of touring, go back home for a week, write a song or two, bring them back out on the road. And then there was just like totally. a part of the live set. It's different taking 10 songs too. And also there is that fear. I mean, I've heard stand-up comedians talk about that. Like I can't workshop my stuff on stage anymore because it's just going to be on YouTube. Uh, the next yeah. day. And we had that fear a lot, but that kind of fell away, uh, especially with As Long As You Are, because, yeah, we did a little tour to road test songs before uh, doing the final recording and and like a whole set went up online, all the seven new songs in the set that we were playing. And it was just like, what does it matter? Maybe it mm -hmm. will drive people back to it. Our second album, An Evening Air, it leaked online to two months before the record came out. It was our first like real record, you know, of our lives. We were so excited about the possibility of this record. And then it just leaked. It was like a day or two before or after I had major knee surgery. So I was laid up in bed. I couldn't work. I was broke. Um, didn't know how I was going to like get through this thing. We couldn't tour because I was recovering from this ACL reconstruction. And then the record's leaking. <laughs> it's just like, this is never going to happen for us. Like we're screwed. But in the end, that leak actually leaks helped us. The leak definitely. helped us. Back then, leaks were like the best thing that could happen to a, a emerging band. I know, but why are we scared of them now? You know what I mean? I think because they've been monetized. Back then, leaks used to just be like the most diehard hungry fans. And now there's just so many like, I guess fear is the wrong word. But uh, there seems to be, I don't know. That's a good question. The hardest part about playing a new song to people is that you aren't as comfortable with it. I mean, people will show you if a song is good or not the first time you play it live. You can think that you wrote a really good song and then you play it in front of people and they're like, eh. But if, even if it has that little spark, but you're, you haven't figured it out quite yet, people are going to respond to it. It's the songs that people know that they, that they want to hear, you know? Whether or not that's the song they want to hear, they're like, oh, I know it, and I enjoy this. And I almost feel like sprinkling that little bit of here's a work in progress into a set and letting people get a little ear for it, it makes them hungry for it. It gives them the taste already. So now we're just going to start leaking all of our practice sessions and everything into the <laughs> yeah, that, That's a good idea. <laughs> we're posting a Queen's tour schedule. And uh, I think... Um, <laughs> don't you think that, like those bands were definitely helped by drugs helped i mean uppers were just like right like david bowie recorded all these records he doesn't even remember being there <laughs> yeah i'm sure that like was part of the, i'm not saying like i want i want to do a world tour and put out two records in a year but i want to find a way to make records while traveling I feel like my whole headspace is different. Like, oh, very much so. Bouncing off that thought Sam was talking about with like the chapters of projects, be it a, a tour or an album or new work. This last year, having having to bounce back and forth between three projects simultaneously got me thinking, well, maybe I could do something like this. Like, I don't know. But like just seeing it done and seeing the product, the result, like tour dates and records, using queen as the example still doesn't speak to how the sausage got made that sausage was most likely 
completely full of cocaine, if that's what you're saying. <laughs> um, I don't really want a cocaine-filled sausage. Um, Speak for I, yourself. <laughs> I just I keep thinking, like, what is, you know, my, my next tour is currently fall of this year. If it happens, I don't know. But when it got canceled in March of 2020, I was immediately like, yeah, let's move this to fall 2022. There's no way touring's going to happen anytime sooner. And even this might not happen. And people thought I was fucking crazy for moving it so far out, but here we are. Um, but I'm wondering like, do I tour Mystic Familiar or do I start treating those songs the same way I would old songs in a set, even though they never had a proper tour. And I wonder if that process is different for me because my recording work is almost less precious makes it sound like it's not as important, but it's not like the only work output I currently have. And I'm wondering for you guys on your next tour, will this material feel like new material or will it feel like old material? And will you be putting in new material? Like, have you even thought about like how you structure a tour? Like you said, that, you, that might not even happen. You don't know when it's going to be or how it will drop. And I'm sure there's stuff you can't talk about since the music industry loves the reveal and shit, but how do you envision a set list for the next future tour? Uh, we'll probably drop like three or four of these as long as you are jams into a set. We're always kind of rebuilding the greatest hits set. That's what mm -hmm. Future Islands plays is the bammers. Like if you come and see us live, you know, we're going to play a, a song or two off our first album, two or three songs off our second album, a song or two off third album maybe i don't really know what people want but for us that's kind of what we want to play you know usually it's, it's the jammers and and of the newer material that's where you get to hear some of the slower songs uh, or or something that maybe changes but i, I don't know because we were we were experimenting even in 2018 we did a south america tour and we played this song tybee island which is on our third album live it was the first time we'd ever played it live and then we did it for multiple sets and it was it made it feel so good to play something that was old, but still so new in a feeling of like, it's never lived in this space. I, I think we're all planning on just writing a new record and probably having one about done by the time we get to tour. I think we all fear that it might be next year before we're touring. And maybe 12 months And you think the lyrics are going to be like, it's still my room, Joel. Hello. It'll never be yours. <laughs> you may sleep there, but it's mine. <laughs> I should actually write a song about that. Taking the pictures from my wall and putting them on my wall. What is my wall? <laughs> I've never gone this long without playing a show. And I'm sure that's true for y'all as well. I keep thinking about like, what is touring? It's, it feels like a whole new paradigm. What post COVID touring will be for people, for road dogs who have been on the road for so long. And then, finally had this extended break. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Hearing you respond to me like, we'll do like the greatest hits and we'll probably have new songs and we'll do the record. I just think it's going to be surreal for a while. And there's going to be either so many shows of so many bands getting back on the road in such a crowded market, or we're going to see a lot of peers have maybe left the game and new younger acts who didn't come up in the same sort of game of touring as much, where the internet has replaced the need to establish yourself on the road. I just wonder what the, what touring in 2021, 2022 and on is going to look like and feel like and then what the festival circuit will be. Yeah, it's do hard you, to say. Do you Sorry, ever man. do you ever play 
material from your scores, Dan, from your soundtrack work in your live I, set? I haven't yet, but I was I was prepping a version for a, a show that was going to be all soundtrack work. And then that never came about because of COVID. But I was like, man, it would be fun to do like like horn phase from rat film in the middle of a set, just like yeah. in quad or something like that. I do think it'll it'll find its way in there. But you know, I'm gonna be opening up for you guys next year. That that's just announced everybody. Uh sorry, you talk I should cut that out. That joke <laughs> that joke didn't really land. Um <laughs> we talked about it before the whole world <laughs> with you. I feel like you screwed it up, Dan. You're like, hey, I'd love to do like we would love to have you, Dan, on some dates. And then the whole world <laughs> shut down. Yeah, I was Same. like, oh, I gotta get a bat to shit on a pangolin. I'm gonna get out of this fucking door. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just uh, as as a fan of of your of your work, Dan, I I would be stoked if if you like just dropped some stuff from the scores into your normal live set because like well, you, you've you, been man. you've been incredibly prolific with your soundtrack work in the last couple of years, like Sam said, and it, it would be a shame to to not highlight that. It seems like you're looking at it like you have to tour your last, for lack of a better term, pop record, Mystic mm-hmm. Familiar. But you've done so much work. I would encourage you to, to consider put, putting some of those in the set. I appreciate that. I do think about it. I just have a hard time finding a way to sculpt it in because it's so much of a a vibe shift. And so much of my let show vibes, is about... Let the vibe shift, man. Tectonic mm-hmm. plates of vibes. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're going to create a, like an earthquake in that room, man. <laughs> I would love to do a movie theater tour, like a seated show with a projector. Do like like when I was in Dying or USA, like there's so much video content for those already. It'd be great to perform along with them. And most of my fans are um, also becoming 40 years old. So it would probably make sense to go into this like chaired market. I think venues <laughs> with chairs are uh, possibly in my future. I think it would be nice to incorporate that work as... I, I also just keep thinking about splitting them off entirely and keeping them completely separate. But I think that's just the way my brain works. And I should like, I'm like, oh, I want my soundtrack to be on a separate account on Spotify or Apple Music. Like I, when you're listening to Mystic Familiar, I want it to go into uh, Cliss Riffer. I don't want it to go into Well Groomed. Like that's a completely different band to me. You know what I mean? It would be like if your solo work was intermixed with the Future Island Spotify. To me, they're like that separate of projects that it's hard for me to envision incorporating. Like I would do like an opening set of score work, but I don't know. Yeah, have you ever thought about doing like a, a tour as Donald Duncan performing the works of composer Daniel Deacon? I have, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Uh, I d- early on when I realized that venues have like separate budgets for openers, I was like, I should just be the opener and I'll show up in like a costume and a disguise and I'll make an extra hundred dollars. <laughs> and uh, I didn't do it. <laughs> we we did that on a tour once uh, years ago, and I'll never forget. We played the Secret Squirrel in Athens, Georgia. It was me and Joel were opening as our our short lived rap group, Flesh Epic. And then Garrett. Flesh Epic. Oh my God, I forgot about Flesh Epic. Do you remember Epic. Flesh Epic? Yes, oh my the, God. Like reading a book made of human skin. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then Garrett would do a Moss of Horror set and then Future Islands would play. And it was weird. We did like five shows and it was really weird. Like I love a, an odd show where people keep coming on, on and off the stage. Like 
one of my favorite things is when the opening band supports the headliner or you know like when we did the Bromp store and y'all were in the ensemble that was mm-hmm. and teeth mountain was i and like on this last tour with devlin from the music beat coming up and playing bass like i love hearing about those old early rock and roll tours where it was like the same backing band with all these different singers or soloists would come up and join them and like Little, Little Richard would do like two songs and then Johnny Cash and, you know, like Chuck Berry, like bam, 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 bam. Like I think about that in like regards to the round robin and shit all the time yeah. and people moving around from stage to stage. But that shit's a lot of fucking work. It's just <laughs> a lot of fucking work. And the, the industry has just gotten really homogenized. Like people want there to be a system and I can respect that because it's, it's a lot of work on the behind the scenes side as well. I used to do all this crazy ass shit. And now I'm like, just trying to be like, how can you actually achieve it? Like, how can I go and do something like this at a festival without it being a technical nightmare? How do you condense a full day's tech setup into a suitcase that you can just unfold and plug in is my main concern for this next tour. Because the last thing I want to do, like realistically, Next time touring happens, there's going to be like the UK model of early show, late show, club show. Like to keep venues alive, there's going to be multiple events a night for at least my size venues of like, you know, venues that are like around a thousand and under. For y'all, I have no idea. You guys play a different game. I'm talking about how difficult like minor league baseball is going to be. And you guys are like, yeah, we got these fucking stadiums. It's six. Um, I think we're back in AAA, I think it's going to be a crowded scene. Maybe it's going to thin out. People are going to get out of touring. But even if they do, the amount of tours and backlogged projects and people who've been sitting on things and new things and youthful acts that are emerging, I think making it as easy on the local crew to get through the show and so that the venue doesn't have to spend any additional money is going to be vital. So, But you're also going to have to be vying for space in a crowded market. I keep thinking about that aspect and that's what that's what i think the talk house podcast listeners want to think is like you know let's talk about the back end let's get some spreadsheets we already got a calendar in the mix i can't wait to see the brian may calendar and uh let's talk about the logistical complexities of creating an engaging live environment with a, a heavily booked calendar wow you I'm really down, brought I'm it all home but i just want to go to a goddamn show yeah tell me about it there's the the, the paranoid germaphobe part of me that's like i'll never go anywhere ever again but I have faith in the rapid testing, vaccine rollout ability for people to feel comfortable again. And I also just keep thinking like jazz came about because of all of the pent up craziness of the early 20th century. And I keep thinking there's going to be an entirely new paradigm in some art form because of this. Something is going to come out based on all this potential energy converting into kinetic energy. And I don't know if it'll, I don't think it's going to be for me. I think it's going to be for people 20 years younger than me, but it's going to be there. And I'm excited for it. I can't wait for there to be like a new wing of art that doesn't exist and couldn't exist pre-COVID that will have come about because of this, this period of utter chaos. Sports jazz. Sports jazz. Sports jazz. <laughs> Looks like he's sliding into second base. He's taking out the alto saxophone. (laughs) 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 
old volleyball blues. <laughs> well, we, all of us on this call, we are converting <laughs> to that place <laughs> where musicians go who have been making music for a long time. And we can look back at the younger generation coming up. And I think it is exciting to, to see what kids are doing. As an artist, you know, I've always had the fear of getting to this point in my career as an artist. And now I'm here and I'm not really so afraid anymore. I'm, I feel like I'm more active than I have been as a writer, especially much more active than I was in 10, 15 years ago. Because um, I think about things different. But, but the music that's being made by kids who have grown up in a completely different way with all music at their fingertips is really, really cool. I hope they like my music too. <laughs> but it's just cool to see what, what how their ears hear things. Um, so yeah, I'm just excited for the sports jazz. Sports jazz is gonna fucking slay. <laughs> it might not even be music. Sports jazz might be like, like a cooking cinema, I don't know. <laughs> No, but I, but really, I never even thought about the birth of jazz in that same time. Just think about how fucking it, crazy being in the south of the United States, like still living in the ruins of like Civil War and World War One and the plague. It just would have been like, give me a goddamn trombone! Like, like it, it, must been, uh, it must have been incredible. Like incredible in that sense of unbelievable, impossible for my brain to imagine. Like you said, when you're young, there's a particular energy to the youth that just naturally mellows over time. Just the refinement of your own taste can narrow your scope or you hone in on a certain frequency. Or maybe it becomes like a higher fidelity, but with less bandwidth or something. And I keep wondering, like, what the fuck would I have been like if I was 22 and just starting to tour when COVID hit? Like, where would my musical energy have been displaced? What would it have gone into? Would I have really gotten into production? And I just keep thinking like after this, like imagine seeing a band like Lightning Bolt now for the first time on the floor after like you can't even go into a store with 25 people in it. Now you're in like a warehouse. And also just like the economic collapse that's about to happen. Like there's going to be so many empty storefronts. And I think cities are going to once again start turning a blind eye to concerts and shows and parties and gatherings because I know everybody needs it. So I'm hoping yeah. there's this like return to what the mid 2000s DIY scene was with the added consciousness of safety and inclusion that wasn't included in that time period. But I just think there's going to be this crazy wild energy. And I could be completely wrong because I'm fucking 39 years old. And what the fuck do I know about youth culture? But what I'm trying to say <laughs> is I do think it's going to go it's going to go off in like a direction that I, I can't foresee. And if this were a book and I were reading it, I'd be extremely excited for the next chapter. Sports jazz. Sports jazz. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast. And thanks to Dan Deacon and Future Islands for chatting. This week's episode was produced by Kevin O'Connell and the Talk House theme was composed and performed by The Range. See you next week.